Americans almost treat scientific sounding language as a religion. You're doing the Wim Hof method and you have seizures because of it, right? And you didn't expect that because there wasn't enough evidence. Right? It's hard to blame anybody, but it's also hard for anybody who was recommending it to have foreseen because there wasn't enough evidence. I actually got my start in investigative journalism by investigating clinical trials where I joined a clinical trial for the erectile dysfunction drug Levitra. And what was interesting is like when I took the Levitra, I knew I was in the placebo because nothing happened. There was a survey that went out to the, the public and they said, what would be the number one thing to help you appreciate the importance of vaccines for COVID? And they said, tell me my civil liberties won't be impinged. I wanted to interview Bollywood celebrities in India about fame culture in India. And IRB repeatedly told me that I could not interview celebrities who give interviews to the press all the time because I would be violating their privacy. It feels like in the last, let's say, decade or so, we've lost our trust in authorities. We learn that someone with a PhD and decades of study on a very specific topic, when they disagree with us on some monumental subject, it could be climate change or the optimal human diet or the correct type of public health response, we, the ordinary people of the world, we think we know better. And the surprising thing is that, well, sometimes, occasionally, we do know better because experts disagree on all kinds of things. And sometimes those disagreements are trivial. In fact, probably most of the times the disagreements are trivial, but sometimes they're monumental. Sometimes expert consensus is in need of an outsider to create a paradigm shift, to come up with an entirely new concept. Uh, and, and those fuddy-duddy people with their stuffed shirts uh, need to see the world outside of a box. Yet at the same time, we're skeptical of expert claims. We also, well, we rely on them. We rely on them every single day. When I do my taxes, well, I don't do my taxes. I go out and find somebody who knows how to do my taxes better than I do. Uh, personally, I only have like a vague idea of how something like electricity actually functions to turn my computer on. Like I know that electrons are moving through wires, but I could not tell you how that adds up to the device you're listening to this story, this podcast on in your hand. I don't know, really know how that works at a very technical level. I fly in planes without knowing how to build one and take medicines with only knowing like sort of how they work. So why is it that we trust a person on a microphone who simply seems like they have a reasonable worldview over someone who has spent their life gathering expertise on a very specific subject? In fact, why do we positively recoil when someone says they simply know more information than us and that we should just trust them because they're the expert and we're the Luddite? Well, to answer these questions, I'm going to introduce you to a man who has a whole bunch of letters at the end of his name. <laughs> this is Jamie Carlin Watson. He's a PhD. He's an HEC-C, which I don't really know what that is. He's a philosopher, a bioethicist, uh, and a consultant on ethics. And most importantly, he's an expert on expertise. Jamie 
so nice to have you on this show because we've been like chatting on like Twitter and the Instagrams for a long time. And we have a very sort of similar worldview on things. And you use a lot more technical words to get there. Uh, most recently, you have this book, A History and Philosophy of Expertise. And uh, yeah, it's it's really, really great to, to have you here. Thanks. Really appreciate you having me. I'm a big fan of your work. And I also love that... Um, you know, you also have the the intimidating wall of books behind you. I, I, I feel like any good expert needs to display their credentials um, behind them and, and tell you exactly how many books uh, they have read <laughs> in their lifetime. Um, uh, I'm guilty of this, too. So, you know, I was reading your book uh, over the last um, week and and. I want to actually sort of begin at the beginning of your book, you know, for for the readers, because, you know, you, you've sort of outlined how, uh, you know, one of these crises is an expertise and, and, and around a very familiar problem that we all have. And so this is like a bit of a longer section. So everyone just like sit down and, and relax as I as I eloquently repeat your words. Uh, and, and you open up by talking about like basically this is a meme that was online, right? This is a meme that, you know, you might read on Twitter and, you know, and maybe this is like, a, you can take a, Gary Larson is maybe uh, sketching this out and it starts 90s scientist. We cloned a sheep. We landed a robot on Mars. Scientists today, for the last time, the earth is round. Which is, you know, sort of like where we are, right? We all sort of recognize the truth in, in our public discourse. Uh, and I'm going to read you this passage. What is frustrating is that despite their often proud, hard-nosed doubt, expert skeptics seem to get through life pretty well. They work alongside us at our jobs. Their kids are, well, fairly normal. They vacation, they retire, they buy motorhomes, and so on. Even with public health threats as seemingly as well-supported as the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, expertise deniers seem to get on with their lives. One person that I know never wore a mask during the COVID-19 pandemic, and here I am talking as if I'm the guy I'm talking to, which is a funny moment. Well, this guy, he did not stop working, which involved his being in contact with many people. His rationale, COVID-19 is a hoax, perpetrated by the mainstream media, mainstream medicine, and pharmaceutical companies, and liberals for the purpose of making more money for the researchers and restricting civil liberties for the politicians. His justification for the hoax, among other things, he says the virus has not affected him or anyone he knows. Anyone who says it has is either lying or is a dupe. Now, this next passage is actually, I think, even more interesting because we know that setup, right? We, we've, we've all been there for that yeah. setup. But the next passage is actually, I think, more important to the discussion we're having. Interestingly, since we know about 80% of COVID-19 cases are asymptomatic and another percentage only have mild symptoms that mimic the flu or a COVID, sorry, a flu or a cold, my acquaintance may never know personally anyone affected by COVID-19. So is his skepticism warranted? Even if his beliefs are false, they don't seem to be doing him or anyone else any harm. 
If any of us were walking in his shoes, living where he lives in a mid-sized city in rural United States, could we say that his beliefs don't fit some rational assessment of the evidence? And this passage is, it's great because it frames the lived experience that so many of us had during COVID-19, which is our most recent skeptical, uh, you know, uh, craze that, that caught America, is that, you know, people around us were more or less fine. They had little the sniffles here and there. And then we're seeing on the news a disaster movie every single day. How do we reckon with this? So now, Jamie... How do we reckon with this? Yeah, you know, our, our reasoning takes a lot of different forms. And one of the most common and pernicious is the anecdotal reasoning, the reasoning from my experience, from my picture of the world. And the thing that social media and the news brings to us is the rest of the world and the impact that certain things have on the way we live. And even if you're not experiencing it in one part of the world or experiencing it the way that somebody else is, it's very easy to generalize from your own experiences to those of others, especially if they challenge sort of fundamental beliefs. I was doing a, a health literacy project and health literacy is just, you know, the strategies to help people appreciate, understand and use health information. And there was a survey that went out to the, the public and they said, what would be the number one thing to help you appreciate the importance of vaccines for COVID? And they said, tell me my civil liberties won't be impinged. Like that's what they were anchoring on. They did. They weren't concerned about how impactful it was to other people's health. To they weren't. They didn't know what was happening in hospitals. They thought they did. They had video cameras outside the hospitals, um, mm -hmm. you know. But they didn't know. They they weren't up on immunology, virology, right? All of the expert domains mm -hmm. that go into understanding a virus. But they were sort of using their anchors. Their anchor was a value, and their anchor was their anecdotal evidence. And so we get in a spiral when we do that. And this has gone back for thousands of years. The first vaccine ever, Edward Jenner, right? It, he had responses like the one we're seeing to COVID vaccines. People were saying, oh, this is undermining God's plan for our bodies to stick stuff in us. Mm -hmm. Was Edward Jenner really the first one who did the vaccine? I thought it was some English guy who, who was playing with cows. So, uh, is that not who I'm talking about? I think it, that's who I'm I th talking I thought Jenner was in the 1900s, but look, one of us is right yeah. and one of us is wrong and we're both sometimes consider ourselves experts. Yeah, on that's right. right. <laughs> so, anyway, and inoculations were prior to the vaccine. You know, we had um, um, vaccine, you know, well, anyway, we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is like the, at the heart of things is that we, our lived experience and what we need to actually practice as an individual human is different than what happens at a society level. But, you know, and I've noticed in the, in the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I was like, I've been reading a bunch of books on the history of vaccines, right? I, I, could, I could cite historical example after historical example of where we actually had a cure for something. Mm -hmm. And people would be like, I can't take that cure. It's going to kill me. And one of the criticisms of, vac of early vaccines, and I, I found these cartoons in like, 19, uh, uh, 1700s newspapers, uh, which showed, uh, and vaccines were, you know, essentially 
derived from cowpox for smallpox, right? Cowpox is a, a pox that grows in the udders of cows. And if you took that, you'd have like a mild infection and then you'd be immune to smallpox in the future. But people around the world were upset that they would have to be taking parts of a cow into their body and they might actually turn into cows. So they would rather have their whole city die of smallpox than take uh, this you know, then, then possibly sully their, their bodies, um, with, with a vaccine. And so, you know, these historical things happen over and over again. What happened in COVID is not unusual. Why would you say that when an expert offers an opinion, our reaction is so emotional? Mm. Yeah, I think we have a lot of you know, sort of human tendencies to, uh, you know, for how we process, process information. We have biases, we have heuristics. Uh, I think so much of it is value laden. I think, again, if you have a broken leg, you don't hesitate about going to the doctor. Like, even if your uncle is a know-it-all, right? You're not going to your uncle to fix your broken leg, um, right? And, and so it's nothing about getting your leg fixed that challenges anything sort of fundamental to your identity. But if someone says, here's a thing, and the government might make you not go to work, Right. And then you're like, oh, I have a reaction to that because right? I have this sort of value kind of built up, bound up mm -hmm. with it. Uh, and we do that with a lot of issues, whether it's abortion or gun laws, uh, anything that we have a sort of deep value laden, vested interest in. We have a reaction to anybody who tells us otherwise. And we know that empirical evidence doesn't work. We know that when you're presented with evidence counter to those beliefs, you tend to entrench more than you, you know, are open to it. And Adam Grant has this great book called Think Again that sort of outlines many of these tendencies and how the most effective negotiators actually start with common ground, things that we do right. agree on, a place mm -hmm. to sort of build on rather than trying to knock down or tear down. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, what, what we do in society is instead of looking for common ground, we look for what group do we belong to? Right. Uh, and, you know, I belong to broadly speaking, the group of liberals, uh, and broadly speaking, you know, that, that person that you opened up with your book with probably belonged to the conservatives. Uh, and the, even though those categories don't make much sense because most of us who are in one of those groups, look at our groups, we're like, Oh no, I don't believe everything you guys believe. You guys are nuts, yeah. but I like what you believe more than these other, than those people believe. And so you have these like concentric circles of in-groups until you get to your tiny bubble, which is basically your social media feed. Right. Right. That's exactly right. You know, it was Christopher Hitchens is this sort of famous political commentary, com you know, person mm -hmm. before he died. And he was, um, you know, very much a conservative in his younger days. And it, it, in later in his life, he said, how did the conservatives become the anti-healthcare part? Like what happened to these sort of packages of beliefs that people said, I'm choosing this package, even if it means there are people dying without healthcare. Mm -hmm. And we double and we triple down on it. And, yeah. you know, you know, I've, I've seen this, you know, I, as a, a journalist, I'm, you know, an expert on a couple things and like a, like a, a moderate, you know, rational person on other things. I'm an, and I'm, I'm an idiot on other things, but like in my domains of expertise, uh, I will often say things that are confrontational to the, to the, to an in-group. Mm -hmm. And then that in-group gets very, very angry at me, even if at once, because at one time they thought that I was their ally. And now they think that I'm not their ally. And I'm like, I'm just me. I'm just going out there doing what I do as an expert over and over again. And I'm not going to mention who this person is. So this is an Easter egg for anyone um, uh, who, who uh, is listening to my podcast for the first time. They can figure out 
what I'm talking about. Um, explain to me this. Um, there's a, a word uh, that is that is it comes up actually in the popular literature quite a bit, um, but it's indicative of things that happen in our times. The Dunning Kruger effect. What is this? And 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 how do I know that I don't have it? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the the hard thing. Uh, so the Dunning Kruger effect is this. Um, there's some evidence that we have this psychological tendency that when we know a little bit about a subject, that we have the confidence that we have much that we know much more. So it's like learning a little bit is dangerous because it gives us this sense of empowerment that we can speak to very complicated issues, things that are far beyond our capacities. Now, if we know nothing, we probably are fine. Or if someone says something and we don't know anything about it, we're like, yeah, okay, whatever you say. But if we know a little bit, there's this tendency to think we know a whole lot more, especially if we're in conversations with people who don't know even that much. Like we're that much more ready to just sort of chime in and whatever, do whatever we do, we riff on these things. Um, yeah, and you know, there's some controversy about whether it's a real effect and whatnot, but I think uh, anecdotally, we talk a lot about anecdotal evidence, like we see it quite a bit. We see it on Twitter, we see it, you know, anybody, anytime somebody learns a new concept, they sort of use it like a hammer and everything's a nail. It sort of comes mm -hmm. up in conversations. Yeah, I recognize that in myself. Um, uh, most uh, strongly, in, and when I look back to young Scott, who was graduating high school, and really felt, I, th I think I really honestly felt that I knew basically everything that was important, right? Like I wasn't, I, 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 I'd taken all these high school classes, and I, I understood a little bit about U.S. history. I sort of understood a little bit of how people worked, and I was so sure that I was ridiculously smart uh, that that that. When I look back at it now, I just want to like, just like, just like hold my head in my hands <laughs> right. and, 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 and just marvel at the, the ridiculous statements that I would make, uh, that, that were just categorical. Like, and, and I, and, and that, 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 you know, at one point I went through like a socialist phase in, in college and I was like, everything is about, you know, uh, you know the political economy and, you know, it's all about the movement of capital. And, and I really, really believed it. I was, I was a, a, a dick. I was a dick <laughs> to so many people. Uh, and, and I think as I've gotten older, I mean, I, I think there are still are tendencies of that, but I think I'm a little bit more aware that the vast body of information out there is that I can only go so far. And yet, how can somebody decide when they've got, what, what is a little bit of information? Like, what does that really, really mean if we actually talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect? Um, like, how do you know that you, you have the authority to speak? I mean, you're an expert on experts. <laughs> how did you become an expert on experts? You know, you spend time, you know, it, it, there's really a whole lot of literature on how to become an expert at anything. And there's mm -hmm. some famous stuff by this guy named Erickson and his colleagues on the deliberate practice. You might've read about it in Malcolm Gladwell, where you put in like 10,000 hours worth of this very specific kind of practice. Turns out 10,000 is just sort of a placeholder. There's a whole range of, of time frames that it might take anyone to become an expert. And then it turns out that even the deliberate practice method only works for a certain type of field, somewhere where there's you know immediate mm -hmm. feedback, like surgery. Like, you know, when you've done something wrong with surgery, and so you're learning constantly <laughs> while you're doing it. 
Right. You know, is a di- whereas there are different fields like, you know, internal medicine, where you're doing like nephrology or pulmonology, like these sort of uh, body system stuff where lots of stuff is going on at the same time. And there isn't really immediate feedback. Like you give some medicine, you watch some metabolic stuff, right? You kind of watch the body, you see what it does and you kind of figure it out as you go. You're not sure any one thing was the fix. And these are, uh, you know, what this psychologist Robin Hogarth calls, um, you know, the wicked learning environments, environments that are hostile to learning properly or figuring out what, whether what you did was the thing that made it happen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you've got these kind learning environments like surgery, you've got wicked learning environments. It takes a lot of time in both. It takes different mental strategies in both, you know, and it takes really spending time with those communities, communities of people who do this on a daily basis. Um, not only with their their scholarly research, we know that so much happens behind the scenes in the social aspects of research, the sort of in-group discussions and, and sort of the culture of a scientific field that helps determine whether someone's an expert or not, whether they become that. And so, you know, when you can engage with other experts, you sort of get the sense that you you sort of understand in a way that you didn't when you were a novice. Mm-hmm. They validate you in those conversations. And so mm-hmm. it's a very complex process to become an expert and to figure out, hey, I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I've, I've you know, I was talking with um, this guy named Adam Rodman who has this podcast called Bedside Rounds, who's really great, he's an internist and uh, uh, highly recommended, you know, the podcast is probably in the feed somewhere. Um, one of the things that I liked about a conversation with him and I, I talked to him about like what in during COVID uh, we have this idea that, that uh, public health officials were just sort of willy nilly making things up and they didn't really know what the answer was. Cause the science, honestly, it wasn't there at first. Like you have this, a new threat and you're like, well, what do we do to a new threat? And when I don't have all of the information and, and, and what he said was actually super interesting. It's like it was the first time that, in living memory for Americans and, and to some degree the world, that that regular individuals had to deal with the uncertainty of medicine. And the experts, when they get in there, when a doctor, when you present to a doctor with symptoms, and you yeah. say, "I got this," you know, "I got this pain in my side over here, sort of under my left." left lung, there's something in this area, the doctor could think that could be like 50 different things. Right. And depending on how urgent it is, they have to take action. They have to take leadership. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes you have to act without all of the facts. And, and to me, that is where, why we go to experts, right? Is like, I don't know. And then you're going to have to act, even though you don't have all the information and, and you might know how to get some of that information. But even when you get more information, there's still this lacuna because there is no such thing as certainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I go to a tax preparer to get so I can pay lower taxes, but there's no guarantee that the IRS does something and makes me pay more taxes later. Yeah. And we, we go there trying to reduce failure, right? right. We're trying to reduce the essence of failure, but we're not able to eliminate failure. Yep. 
Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, like you said, this was the first time that the public has really wrestled with medical uncertainty. Mm -hmm. But medicine is one of those fields that uncertainty has been rife from the beginning. And one of the things I love on your shelf behind you, you've got Catherine Montgomery's book, How Doctors Think. And that book mm -hmm. starts from the premise that medicine is uncertain and we have to deal with that every single day. And again, like you said, patients don't typically deal with that because doctors have these algorithms in their head and they're working through uh, what we call differential diagnoses right in the moment. And they're able to figure it out. They think horse, not zebra, which means the more common mm. thing is more likely, the less common thing. Well, if it becomes that, then we'll, we'll get to it. Oh, say the whole statement because horses, not zebras is like such a such a, a, a perfect medical metaphor that everyone can understand. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you say, you know, you're t teaching medical students, they're often tell you, well, think horse, not zebra. So if you've got a set of symptoms and they could, you know, match on to 50 different diagnoses, right? What you should do is start with the most common diagnoses. Don't go to the rare cancer that's only been discovered in Turkey back in 2006, right? That's probably mm -hmm. not what you want to start treating. You want to start treating the common things. Now, mm -hmm. if one of those things is particularly urgent, like it could kill you, right, uh, quickly, then we want to sort of rule it out quickly if you can. And so this is where the, the sort of human expertise, the judgment of a doctor comes in as they're weighing that constantly. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you have the symptoms of strep throat, you know, the symptoms of strep throat look a whole lot like the symptoms of mononucleosis, right? And so mm. you're trying to figure out how do I say one is not the case? And so you're thinking- Right, because you, but you, the, the nice thing about the doctors is that they know that there's sort of a limited number of options that present yep. with a certain type of symptoms Absolutely. and they can rule out things quickly. And then unfortunately, your patient has spent the last three years watching Dr. House MD. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> Right. Where where Dr. House only finds zebras like he yes. lives in a world where yeah. when he goes onto a dude ranch in central Colorado, somehow it's the only dude ranch that has all zebras on it. Yeah. Absolutely. And 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 yet we want the Dr. House. We want the hero who is certain who like, you know, I don't know if you've read much Sherlock Holmes, but, you know, I find Sherlock Holmes insufferable because the books just have a story of a mystery. And at the end, he's like, look, there were clues that there's no way you could have pieced together yourself because I didn't give you enough information. Right. And right. I have magically pulled it out of nowhere. Uh, and that's how we want our experts mm -hmm. to be. Uh, you know, we always want certainty. We want diseases to be like real things. Like we right. want something to be syphilis out there. Like syphilis is a disease and it's like, exists in an almost ideal form when in reality syphilis presents in a, i don't know maybe a dozen different ways uh and and you could and it's not just the existence of the pathogen it's also how your body has responded to the pathogen in your body yeah. and to to understand that at a at a population level is very different than to understand it at an individual level yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. Population level versus individual level is huge. And that sort of comes back to even the question of differential diagnosis, like when you're sitting there, whether it's strep throat or mononucleosis may depend on what's prevalent in the school system at that time, which one you mm -hmm. choose to, to investigate further. Right. And so that's an environmental thing. That's a that's a population thing that's going to inform your medical judgment at the moment. This is one of those things where we talk about, you know, how AI is going to influence medicine and how it's going to affect expert judgment. It's like, well, look, AI is great for sort of gathering all of the things we already know. But as we know, medicine is uncertain, you know, and so there's this great passage. I don't know if you know Atul Gawande's work. This is a mm, yeah. checklist manifesto. And he's a surgeon, you know, he's got lots of experience and he's being mortal and uh, complications. But they did they did a study of 41,000 trauma patients. And they found that um, 
They had 1,224 different injury-related diagnoses in 32,200-something combinations. So you think about how medical research works. It's like, well, if you've got X condition and Y condition, then we can treat it. What if you've got six of those? What if you've got the 32,001 combination? Well, it takes an expert judgment to sort of sort through that in the moment for this patient in that patient's environment. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you get more and more variables, uh, I mean, you say it takes expert judgment. Well, it doesn't take expert judgment. Expert judgment is the best guide we have. Well, it's, yeah, right. Yeah, um, you know, the, at, at some point, you know, you, your body may heal itself. Of course. And the, and the expert might be involved in being like, well, you know, usually they'll pre- prescribe some treatment because mm-hmm. uh, we want a treatment. Uh, but, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the, the fundamental reality is that we're all definitely going to die like, <laughs> at some point. Like it, it, we lost the game yeah. and, and death is definitely coming. And we're hoping that that doctor can like eke us out, you know, just squeak us by some of the, the more, uh, you know, fatal things that are, that are, that are coming right around the corner yeah. uh, that, you know, and, and, and there's no promises. And, and in America, we definitely want promises. Like that's what whole, the whole insurance paradigm is. It's like you want, you know, we want certainty. We want medical opinions to matter and to be real. And if that medical expert made a mistake, that medical expert in, in at least some ways we frame this is liable for, for that. And, but mistakes are like part of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that allows us to trust experts, like people who are complete strangers, people we haven't investigated their credentials, one of those, you know, things that allows us to do that is this, these sort of social safety nets for things like liability. Um, Mm -hmm. Philosopher Stephen Turner has this notion of bonding conditions, right? This idea that you can be held responsible for getting it wrong. And that's what we want, you know, and that's a, that's a really nice thing to have to help us facilitate trust in experts in this sort of complicated world we live in. But there's only so much that, that bonding conditions can do. If you're going to fly in a plane or you're going to go trust a skydiving instructor, right? Bonding conditions are useless because if you're going down, you're all going down, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's going to be no person afterward to sort of file that claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you sort of really have to process what it means to be an expert, what it means to trust someone, how to break out of that sort of anecdotal cycle that you get yourself into and think um, sort of, you know, at a population level. So what would you say, like, how do we decide as a human, right? How do we decide, like, if, if, if there's an area that we feel like we need an expert, mm-hmm. how do we find one? And how do we suss out somebody who says they're an expert, but is really just Dunning-Krugering. Yeah. And that, that's really tricky, depending on the field. Every field is going to have a little bit of different set of credentials or ways of identifying the person who's an expert. So you mentioned the letters at the end of my name, H-E-C-C. I'm a certified healthcare ethics consultant. What does that mean that I can do? Well, it's hard to say. <laughs> and, and the fact that I'm a member of a professional organization that has a certification like doesn't tell anybody else what I can or can't do. And it doesn't indicate what sort of expertise that might confer on me by, you know, having achieved that. Right. Um, I mean, Pokey Bear LLC, which is my company, could easily confer on you any credential you want. But Any credential you want. But right. Pokey Bear LLC is not a verified member of, of any <laughs> professional circle. <laughs> right, right. Who knows what criteria you're using to <laughs> certify me? And why are you certifying me? Are you certifying me because I'm an expert or because I have a certain kind of insurance, right? I have a liability safety net, right? What are you, what are you looking for? You're looking for the, the expert, the competent one. And so hopefully we can, we can figure out what criteria 
are, are indicative of competence in a field. And so you know, if you go into a hospital, your general practitioner isn't going to go look at your surgeon and say, well, I'm going to go check out what school he went to and what, how he graduated and, right, um, or, you know, your, your nephrologist and say, is she really good at what she does? Let's look at her track record. Like they're not going to do it, right? Because there's all these institutional things that sort of confer authority in those contexts, right. like a competent person. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get out of that into the political sphere, things get really much. You know, how do you know whether to or, or just in the social sphere, how do you know whether to trust this um, mortgage lending company to when you're going to buy a house, you know, mm-hmm. that they're going to tell you the right things, they're going to disclose the right things. You might know of some uh, accrediting bodies that are going to hold them accountable, but you don't know what those are. Mm-hmm. And so from my perspective, you know, one of the best things you can do is to create these things that I call companies of trust, where you find people in different fields that overlap. You know, so if you're going to ask about a mortgage broker, you find um, real estate agents who've worked with that mortgage broker. You know, you find mm-hmm. um, other you know, banks that have worked with that lending agency and you sort of get a you sort of calibrate your beliefs. You want people who have expertise. So you don't want just Joe Schmo off the street uh, weighing in on whether this mortgage company is worth working with. Like maybe they had one bad experience, as we've said. What we want to know is whether they're competent in general, not whether they could fail. Every expert could fail. So we want a group of experts with overlapping interests in a particular field and that can actually speak to strengths and weaknesses. This so you also want them not to be tied in with them, right? Absolutely. Because one of the one of the things is like I might be wanting to buy a house uh, and and some bank has recommended this this yeah. mortgage broker. Well, maybe the bank is getting a kickback to like defraud you, which happens all the time. Of uh, and, and big banks, and there's, big banks have gotten in trouble for this. And, and we don't know how, like as an individual, it, it, like when I look at this, I'm like, well, I guess I just got to go take a risk. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I just have to hope. I mean, I have a financial advisor. This is sort of, this is weird. This is an existential crisis in my life. I am okay with my own bank account, but I have no idea how to invest things into the world yeah. and not, you know, like a year or two ago, I gave all of my money to one dude who my friend said, this is a good guy. <laughs> and, and they're part of an institution that is very well known. Uh, and, and I'm like, okay, guy, have my money. And, I, and, and, and even to this day, it rankles in me because it's a, it's a very high stakes thing. To, mm-hmm. to give your entire in general future to someone who's essentially a stranger based yeah. on a recommendation and an institution uh, that's involved. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and it's, it's one of those things where the more calibrating you do, you, you, you learn a few things. So even if you don't know, look, I can hundred percent trust this person. You learn things along the way, as long as you're asking questions of these folks, you're learning very quickly what you don't know, things that you should have been looking for, which you had no idea about because those people at least know that. Uh, you learn what you might have missed as far of a, this, this process. Um, and I think you learn which debates are worth having. You know, so if you think about something like climate change, again, it's not it, it's beyond the anecdotal. It's at the public level. Um, when you look at the ways that debates are happening outside climatology, insurance companies aren't debating whether climate change is happening. They're debating how to respond. How do we adjust premiums so that we accommodate? Like that's telling if somebody who has got a vested interest in it, but isn't a climatologist is taking it seriously. 
I was on a, a, a snorkeling tour recently and the snorkeling tour guide company was very transparent. They said, you know what? We have a, we have a bit of a conflict of interest here because we want to take you to the Great Barrier Reef and we're going to take you to the spots that we know are good. Um, but we know that that can harm them. And that's our business. And a hundred mm-hmm. uh, yards up the reef, right? They're dying. And we know that. And we know this is part of climate change and we're contributing to the process. And so we just want you to be aware that we have, right? So the debates that are ha- that are ha- No, they wanted you to buy in. They didn't <laughs> want you to be aware. No, that you're totally, you're, you're wrong. What they wanted you to be part of their corrupt cabal yes. of, of reef destruction. Of reef destruction. That's right. That's what they're really interested in. <laughs> they want to push you towards skydiving. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, it, the thing is, is that we want things as, as individuals, right? You wanted to go on your, your scuba diving right. and they said, look, we're in the business of, of scuba diving and scuba diving is bad for the reef. And you made a value judgment to be like, well, it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, you know that, and, and I do this stuff too. Like we all are involved in, mm-hmm. in, in understanding that there's a, there are macro problems. Yeah. Climate change is a really interesting problem because there's nothing yeah. you or I can do about it. Like, I don't care how much you recycle, sea levels are still going to rise, yeah. right? I, right? I don't, it, 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 the, the problems are so big that in some ways, it's sort of a MacGuffin in the expertise debate mm-hmm. because the only people who matter are the people making huge decisions like oil yeah. companies and plastic manufacturers. And, you know, people release, you know, maybe if you're a farmer with a lot of, CO2 generating crop, you know, animals or, or whatever. There are things that, that, that those people can do. But for most of us, it's more of like an armchair debate. Like yeah. we're on a roller coaster and we're like, we hope someone has checked out this roller coaster uh, and, and maybe it will go somewhere. And, and somehow it's also like this hot button issue that people really, really care about. Yeah. Um, and they also feel like having that knowledge matters. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and yeah, I mean, can you speak to this at, at all? Like the futility of becoming an expert in something that you don't have control over? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you've got to decide what you want to put your energies toward and what, what sort of role that plays for you and your own well-being. If I want to go and become an expert in classical music or Mahler's music, you know, like I could do that. I could spend a lot of my time and then I would have a certain amount of authority to kind of speak to that in various contexts. But what is my interest? What What's motivating me to go there? What sort of... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Well-being is it pushing for me? So yeah, I mean, there is a there is a futility for some of it. Um, you know, for some of it, it's um, you know being a well-informed citizen is sort of, it sort of matters to people. Um, mm-hmm. And and again, I think it comes back to what what questions are worth debating. So again, the insurance companies aren't debating uh, whether climate change is happening; they're debating how do we respond. And and mm-hmm. like knowing that there are multiple different versions of that question of how to respond, Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. Are you a pessimist thinking that nothing will ever happen? Are you an optimist thinking that scientists will figure out some things to do some carbon capture that will mitigate it? Like those are interesting questions. That's what experts are debating. The Mm -hmm. sort of the sort of binary bias that that Adam Grant talks about and think again, right? That's where we get in the armchair. It's like, oh, it's either happening or it isn't. It's like, well, that's not the interesting question for people who actually know something about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And So so I think the futility question can be informed a little bit by the types of debates that are happening. Like, what are you invested in? What sort of debate? Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, to go back, it, this this dovetails with that that first question that we we put out. Your 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 guy who wasn't going to do the masks because it was yeah. all corruption in, in the world, or you know, whatever whatever constellation of of, of uh, anti COVID 
thoughts were there. One of the things you say in the second paragraph is that is that for him, not wearing a mask had no consequences, mm. right? And that's really, really interesting. And it's sort of what I'm pushing at here with the climate change thing mm. is that almost no action you can make in climate change is actually going to matter, right? Like, like the the unless you're super powerful, you know, it doesn't really matter what po- politician you like. You know, your your decision on Biden or Trump is going to make zero actual impact. It's millions and millions and millions of people acting together that actually creates impact. But all we are able to do is decide what happens immediately in our life. So the guy Mm -hmm. who is saying, I don't want to wear a mask because the government is, you know, all up in my business. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter that he didn't do that. Mm. So, I mean, I think it does because what even though even if it never affected him like it clearly could be affecting someone else if he becomes one of those 80 percent transmitters and the person mm-hmm. that he transmits it to um has you know acute respiratory failure and dies mm-hmm. right that's that's on him for not taking it seriously enough that he has a responsibility to others to, to take mm-hmm. now look you can ask about what degree of responsibility you can ask about what what kinds of behaviors are reasonable to ask of someone um you know, but again, when you take this sort of population level, you know, uh, perspective, when you look back at things like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, mm-hmm. and you look at like the places that did the best, that had the fewest number of deaths and critical illnesses were the places that were doing exactly what the government said to do this time, which was social distancing right. and, and, and uh, staying at home and things like that. And so you think, okay, well, look, it's the same kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if we take the fact that we have evidence, we have knowledge, we have expertise, we can't just say, well, it's not affecting me personally, so I can just ignore it. Now, the climate change issue is an interesting one, because it's like, well, how would I have an effect? And what sort of effect? Is it just voting? Is that the best I can do is vote? Um, You know, do I have responsibilities, at least locally, even if I'm not affecting the climate, right? I might still be affecting my local landfill, by how much Mm -hmm. garbage I'm putting into it. I might be affecting local lakes with how much plastic gets in there. Um, And so again, understanding the nuance, what debate's worth having? Is it worth having the, um, you know, the the carbon emissions debate? Probably not, at least from my individual perspective, but it certainly matters whether I'm dumping stuff in my local uh, Mm -hmm. areas, you know, uh, animal welfare is another one that it affects both the environment and the individual animals and your local mm-hmm. environments. Right. And so again, the more, you know, the more you complexity you appreciate and you can mm-hmm. see where you can actually make a difference. How would you say authority, um, plays into this? Now I, I, I run this through my mind a lot when I think about say COVID, right. But it really applies to anything is that, in COVID, what there was was a, a basically a schism in society where we had people on the left and people on the right. They had different things that they wanted to do, different authorities that they wanted to listen to, mm-hmm. uh, and and also their own individual decisions, which would go in a million different directions. And it struck me that what actually had to happen was the society had to act together, yeah. almost irrespective of the... Um, uh, the actual direction of the things that they did. Mm-hmm. Like it struck me that, you know, that we, we didn't have all the science, right? right. We, we didn't know what actually would happen. And we, and we look in retrospect, mm-hmm. full masking versus no masking, right? Countries that full masked 
just delayed the the outbreak in that country. Like China got hit with a huge wave after, you know, they locked everyone down. They locked people in their apartments right. and they had a great time, like no COVID transmission. And then later it had a full COVID transmission, even when vaccines were distributed and, and, and a whole bunch of things like that. And and it, 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 it what, what struck me is that it was actually more or less a rebellion against authority, against being told what to do. And yet authority is like super important. Mm -hmm. uh, and while I, I hate that, because that also sounds really fascist, <laughs> right? That, that, that you have to at some point say, look, I just have to like give up control of myself and say this person, even if I don't want to do it, I have to go do it. I mean, how do we how do we really reckon with that? Because it sort of implies that we need to have empathy for people that we don't know about. And yeah. honestly, we don't like a lot of the time. Right. Um, uh, you know, how many people on the on the left were like, I hope more Republicans die because they're not wearing masks. Mm -hmm. Super common tweet. Yeah, yeah <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things we do is we conflate two kinds of authority. We talk about like political or administrative authority. That's the authority to make us do stuff. Mm -hmm. And when we have a public health crisis, we've got what we call, uh, you know, the sort of knowledge authority, the authority that comes through competence in a domain. And that's mm -hmm. what we want. That's what we want. People who know what they're talking about to speak to the things they know what the, that they know mm -hmm. about. And that's the information that we need. But when it becomes a public health crisis, right, these get jammed together because the, right. the people who know what they're talking about are saying, hey, this thing's dangerous. We don't know how much yet. And the politicians who have the authority, they have to say, well, we got to do something. Um, mm -hmm. And we're going to exercise caution. We're going to go on the more conservative side. And, and, and it sounds weird. It's not conservative in the political sense, but right. Conservative thinking and sort of we're trying to mitigate damage, mitigate death, mitigate critical illness. Right? And so we're going to exercise our authority based on this little bit of information that the experts are still learning about. Mm -hmm. And that upsets people. Because people are like, well, you don't know enough yet. I'm like, yeah, but we know enough to know it's dangerous since so we have to do something. And have, so have you read Have you read the book The Premonition by any chance by no, Michael Lewis? All right, so that that is was a, it's an interesting book. I don't actually think it's Michael Lewis's best book, but it's it's about the COVID nineteen epidemic, the the initial moments, mm -hmm. um, and it was written during the middle of the COVID nineteen epidemic. So you're like, you guys missed the end when you're reading this. But one of the things that's actually a little bit contradictory to what you just said is what actually played out is the government was like, we don't want to listen to the experts at all. Mm -hmm. And we have an institution called the CDC that does not want to listen to the experts for years, like well before, well, well, well before um, COVID-19. You know, they were like, we'll just ignore it. Like with swine flu, like we'll just ignore it and maybe it'll go away. And it went away and they're like, hey, we were right to ignore it. And then COVID-19 happens and they ignore it for so long that the, by the time they get to like, let's go mask or let's go, you know, do public health precautions. It's so late that public health precautions cannot possibly work. Mm. And it's actually a, and, and even though there was a small group of experts being like, let's go do this. We've looked at the 1918 data. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, we're, 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 we're public health officers in California. We see this coming forward with, with TB. But the experts actually can't even get listened to by the political decision makers until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, it's super complicated. You know, there were a lot of different moving parts, one of which is, you know, there were disagreements among experts in the CDC about the effectiveness of masks. At first they said they weren't, then they said they were, and then it's double masks and whatever. Right. And so that complicates things. There's also this thing called geographic lag that was happening. Mm -hmm. um, my colleague at the Hastings Center, Nancy Berlinger, sort of coined this phrase, geographic lag during the pandemic. So you have the coasts who are really getting hit hard. Like there were people in New York that I know in healthcare 
who like they were running out of pain medicine to help patients at the end of life. Like we made this big deal about mm -hmm. ventilators, but there were a lot of other resources that they like people were dying without pain meds because mm -hmm. they were out. Well, I was in Arkansas at the time. Arkansas hadn't been really hit yet. Um, and so we had this geographic lag. We could kind of see what was coming and kind of prepare. And uh, where I worked at the time, we had somebody who uh, was had a, had a voice in the government. And so there were things that were set up in place that kind of helped by the time it got to Arkansas. Now, I hit. We got two big waves in Arkansas, just like kind of everywhere else. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's complicated. And, and so I'm oversimplifying when I say that there's this sort of conflict between political authority and expert authority uh, when they're sort of shoved together. Because I think it's different in different places. And it depends on what the experts are saying, right? If they're saying something that's sort of, I mean, obviously, one of the big pushbacks was how much do we lock down? Like some of the experts mm -hmm. are saying really lock down and the politicians are going, no, it's going to kill our economies and that's going to be a worse problem, which mm -hmm. is relevant. That's part of this sort of companies of trust thing. Like just the, the medical side was not the only relevant voice because there were damages that would, mm -hmm. would be economic, that would be mental health um, related and this sorts of things. And so there were all factors that had to be taken into account. So, yeah, like I'm not I'm not trying to uh, disagree with Michael Lewis, but I, I think it's a lot more complicated. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, Michael Lewis has a, he's, he's just a fun writer sometimes. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, sure. He also didn't finish the book. He finished it too early, right? You know, he, yeah, some yeah, of his of questions are. So, you know, let's move on to like another question, right? Now, sure. I want to talk a, just a little bit about, uh, let's talk about expertise in the wellness industry. Because, yeah. you know, I'm known a little bit in the wellness industry for talking about ice baths and breath work and stuff like that and, and, and exposure. And, and the things that I talk about are based on science. Mm -hmm. But it's based on B plus science. Let's be honest. Like a lot of the science that 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 I cover, and and many people in the wellness industry cover, are more indicative of things that are possible, right? That are likely even in some. But we don't have billion dollar pharmaceutical grade trials that yeah. actually tell us what is actually happening for a very narrow slice of things. What I'm saying is like, hey, ice bathing and breath work might help you for everything a little bit. Yeah. But uh, but but it's not like this will cure diabetes, right? You know, it's, it, 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 the questions and the, and, the, and the prognostications are a little different. So mm -hmm. how do we, one, evaluate wellness um, claims, mm -hmm. right? Because which go from anything, which I think is fairly reasonable, reasonably evidence-backed things, to yeah. let's go put this rainbow enema made of coffee up your butt and it's going to make you more fertile. Like, you know, we, we, it has a huge range of what is wellness. Yeah. How do we evaluate this, this world? When well, I think, like, we have to be super careful in this world, as you have pointed out a number of times in different podcasts, like the ways in which you apply some of these techniques and strategies that are being still explored, right, can make a huge difference to your, difference to your health. So if you're doing the Wim Hof method and you have seizures because of it, right, and you didn't expect that because there wasn't enough evidence, right, it's hard to blame anybody, but it's also hard for anybody who was recommending it to have foreseen because there wasn't enough evidence, right? And I mean, you got me into this, this whole the, the, the question about the effectiveness of ice baths and heat. And, uh, you know, I love your wedge strategy, right? This sort of notion that like your own experience of it matters, uh, you know, mm -hmm. but you have to sort of be aware of what sort of risks are you taking? Because there's a risk benefit trade off for anything. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know enough, right, you could get really hurt. Uh, you mm -hmm. could you know, get, get really injured. And so 
like the things like you've been talking about, about, you know, trying to do breath work in water, super, super dangerous, right? Now you're getting more and more evidence. Like as the evidence rolls in, we have to adjust our beliefs. We have to be ready to adjust our beliefs. And, and you know, brown fat's one of these really interesting ones because I literally read three very different perspectives when I'm trying, totally. trying mm-hmm. to figure it out, right? And so you've got, you know, the, the um, guy you interviewed, Mark and Lichtenbolt, who hypothesized that it was about- uh, Auto music was the one I interviewed. I mean, Lichtenbelk, I also no, sorry, interviewed. Sorry, in but... the, uh, in, um, what doesn't, in what doesn't kill, kill us. us. Correct, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he had hypothesized that it was the growth, like more brown fat. And then he kind mm-hmm. of found out, well, actually it wasn't. The brown fat didn't grow. And then you've got people like- um, Susanna Soberg, who Andrew Huberman just you know interviewed recently, who says it's activation of brown fat, mm-hmm. and it can help with thermogenesis. By the way, I didn't preface this, but right, the brown fat, um, the idea is that potentially either activating or growing brown fat could help you in ice baths and help you adapt to cold. Is that right? And lose weight, and, and lose, lose weight, yeah. and look better, and get wealthier. All yeah. of those things. Brown yeah. fat, and then the you best. got Otto Muzak, who says, "Oh, brown fat's irrelevant." Right? Mm-hmm. Three different experts right? Mm-hmm. Who are sort of still exploring this. And so we're learning. Now, what do I do with that as a non-expert, clearly non-expert, right? All I can do is wait for the evidence, right? There's mm-hmm. nothing to act on, whether it's brown fat, whether it's intercostal muscles, whether it's, um, you know, my, my body just adapting, my sympathetic nervous system adapting, to like whatever, like, I don't know what it is. Um, but yeah, so I have to wait, I have to suspend judgment. So I think we have to be very careful about who's saying what, and what the evidence actually is. You know, one of the things I liked about Susanna Soberg's interview is like, she's very clear. She's like, the first study I did was clearly preliminary data. It was very, very small, right? Mm-hmm. And I was relying on them to do the work in a natural environment, which is very different from a lab, right? All those ca- caveats matter to what, to how mm-hmm. good the science is. But on the other hand, the, the claims on the, the article, and even to some degree, Susanna Soberg, uh, she has a like a brown fat business and a lecture tour. When I look mm-hmm. at her website, I'm like, ooh, I, I don't, I, I, when I evaluate an expert, I want to see that they are financially um, isolated from yeah. the thing that they're prognosticating on. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I read her research, I see those caveats in the research. And then I see the claims uh, that she makes on a podcast like Andrew Huberman's, like brown fat's the next, the next great thing. And I'm like, well, actually, that's not what your research said. Hmm. And that's a very common problem is where right. where we, you know, as I say, the research and what doesn't kill us in the wedge, like a lot of this is like B plus research, which is not yeah. bad. Right. And but it's but you, you have to be aware that we're not at A plus and yet you still have to act in this world of uncertainty, which is not that's to say true. you don't do ice baths. Right. Ice, right. Uh, ice baths may make you more resilient, may do all sorts of things for you. But when making a claim on the mechanism, yeah. that's the problem. And in America, we want the mechanism. We want to know why something happens. And and frankly, I don't know why we want to know that in a mm-hmm. lot of cases. Like I don't I don't care if if my testosterone level is high or low, mm-hmm. according to someone, because it's an, a standard deviation pattern that is optimal. That says 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 someone. I care if I'm happy or not. Yeah. I care that if I'm if, if I'm working in the world, but. Americans almost treat scientific sounding language as a religion. Yeah. I can drop, I can talk, talk about, Oh, you're, you know, you're, you really feel really hungry today. You should go on a keto diet. Cause that's going to maximize your ghrelin, uh, uh, uptake. And, and then after that, your, you know, your, your, your hormonal cycles will, will, you know, track with the sun and, and, you know, whatever, like the, those sorts of statements, those why statements 
don't really matter as much as qualitative statements in my mind, especially as someone who's a non-expert where, right. where I go into something yeah. and I'm like, I can't make a judgment here on the science. I can tell you the science. I can try to interpret the science for you. But at the end of the day, the science doesn't even really matter until it does until, yeah, yeah. until well, like something is killing you or exactly. definitely making you better. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, conflict. So when you're talking about Soberg, right, your conflict of interest, red flag is going off, right? You're like, okay, look, that can actually undermine the authority of an expert when they have a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And when we look at, you know, the field of medicine, like there are conflicts of interests all over the place, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of the doctors who are doing medical device research are also practitioners and mm-hmm. they just have to disclose that they have the conflict of interest. And so the thought is, well, it doesn't necessarily undermine their recommendation, mm-hmm. right? Because this is the field they work in. They're the expert, right? They're, it's their device, right? It could really do good things for you. But at the same time, it's like, well, geez, when would it? Like, like how would a patient ever know when it when the conflict of interest did undermine their doctor's ability to give them a genuine recommendation? Like you're stuck, right? Unless you go get a second opinion, somebody who's done other research, somebody like how many people, you know, are really going to be invested in your little narrow group of like red light therapy, like to right. do another confirmatory study. Like, you know, it, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, I hate that response because it's right, right? Your response is is accurate. It's hard. And I hate that response because what we actually want is some certainty. And yeah. like the vast majority of medical research is actually, um, well, actually there's a ton done in universities, but like, like uh, the big stuff is all done by pharma companies who are like, I want to sell a drug for a billion dollars. I don't want to invest a billion dollars in this or a hundred million dollars into this clinical trial, unless I'm pretty sure I'm going to get results. And I've been on clinical trials before, actually totally weird side uh, journey here. But uh, I actually got my start in investigative journalism by investigating clinical trials where mm-hmm. I, where I joined a clinical trial for the erectile dysfunction drug Levitra, uh, where it was a me too drug based on Viagra. So I got stuck in a room with 30 dudes all on these penis poppers and the, and what was interesting is like when I took the Levitra the first time, um, I, I knew I was in the placebo because nothing mm-hmm. happened, right? It was like, oh, okay, I'm on the, I'm definitely in the control, in the control arm. And then the next weekend, I was definitely in the active arm, not mm-hmm. because of a great erection, but because I got a massive headache. Like it's just a hugely terrible headache that wouldn't go away for like a day. And then the next day, I, so I reported the symptoms. And the next day, I was mysteriously removed from the clinical trial hmm. uh, because um, they they had already gotten too many people into the clinical trial. But part of me is thinking, oh, well, they they wanted to juke their statistics, right? Mm-hmm. This this happens all the time in clinical trials where that where where you know you know the drug is basically safe, so you're not even really too worried about it. And then you start having these negative symptoms show up in your data. You don't want that there, but you have an out and you can switch people between arms. Mm. And I was definitely removed because that headache was was a little bit complicated for their data. Mm. And and I think that, you know, when we look at like falsification of science, mm-hmm. it's actually a really big problem because you you as a scientist have an incentive to report positive results. When you when you when you have a hypothesis and it doesn't check out, those studies don't get published. You don't get tenure based on this question. So there's all these incentives that are actually ascientific in the world. And, and obviously people are aware that this is a problem, mm-hmm. but it's not a problem that is being resolved by the community in a way that is financially lucrative for 
for the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another case most recently, there was this, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Dan Arley, A-I-R-L-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Arley-O-L-E-O. So he, he's a, a guy who, who does research on lying. Mm-hmm. And, and recently there was a study. So he, he got famous for a study where he said, look, we're going to see if on car waivers on like Hertz, right? If you wrote the, the pledge at the very beginning of the waiver saying, I will answer all of this truthfully versus if you had that pledge at the bottom, um, will you have a, a more truthful response? And what they found in the data and what, 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 when he ran this study, he, fa- he, he said, look, look, it was very clear that people who made the pledge at the beginning of a contract were more honest in their, mm-hmm. in their studies. And it was, uh, it, it was the grounding of his career. And it was, you know, he built a great book series and he's got a big social media following. Mm-hmm. But it turns out he faked all the data mm-hmm. on his lying study. Jeez. And that came out like, two to, like, like you know, a, a couple of weeks ago. And so we have you know, experts on truth who <laughs> yeah. are lying. Yeah. And, and then how do we trust experts in general? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, there a lot of big questions here and, and, you know, there was a, a replication crisis, you know, we love this word crisis, um, and, um, psychiatry, psychotherapy, you know, a few years back, there's a retraction crisis. Oh, in oh my God. Research, yes. Right. <laughs> research getting retracted for fraudulent things. Um, there are difficulties with the internal review process. So I was part of my previous institution. I was on the IRB, right. We reviewed protocol studies and like, so, you know, maybe you were kicked out because of the, you know, they were messing with the data. Maybe you're kicked out because the headache was an adverse, unexpected reaction. And so they drop you, right? I mean, there are these protocols that we put in place in the IRBs, but the IRBs don't check how you've used your data, right? That wasn't part of our process. We were looking at the protocol mm-hmm. going forward and checking for human subject safety. We weren't doing a check on, you know, what you were, how you were using that data. So lots of questions about, you know, which studies get funded, um, which studies, you know, are, are motivated by, you know, which program director, like you're a PhD student and like you go study with the person who wants to do what you want to do anyway, right? And so you mm-hmm. kind of have this, um, you know, and, and there are lots of people pushing back, like you said, at the beginning of the podcast, like sometimes there's the, there's the expert consensus and it takes somebody from the outside to go, you know what? I'm not sure this is actually working. Like you've, you've been talking about this for years, but like this, this, like BMI, BMI is a really hot topic right now. Body mm-hmm. mass index. Like it's been part of the wellness industry. It's been part of healthcare. Uh, it's supposedly correlated with all of these you know, negative health effects. And then some people are going, you know what though, but we're, there are a whole lot of patients who have a high BMI that seem to be perfectly healthy. And we need to, Oh, I have a really that. high BMI and I'm, I'm pretty healthy. Like I'm yeah. one of the, I am one of the, I'm six, two and 200 pounds. And like, wait a yeah. minute, actually, uh, I, you're, you're Scott's fine. Scott's yeah. Fine. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you keep telling me I need to lose weight every single time I come to the doctor. It seems like we should focus on something else. Mm-hmm. And so BMI has sort of become this, this bugbear for non-experts to say, look, we need to challenge the, the status quo here. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I certainly want to leave room for that. that. That's part of the growth of knowledge is the person from the outside coming in and mm-hmm. saying, hey, we got to rethink some of this. Yeah, and it's interesting you talk about the IRB boards. You know, I was a uh, got getting my PhD in anthropology, and I dropped yeah. out before I got my PhD. Um, but it was at the dissertation stage. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I dropped out was dealing with IRB because <laughs> because IRB in medic medicine. And, and, sorry for those who aren't aware, it, IRB means Institutional Review Board. So it's sort of the ethics committee that oversees. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, how a research study is completed. And they, and they became very important because after like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, right. where a, a, a bunch of African-Americans were left untreated for syphilis in order to get a great control study to see how certain techniques worked. But, but that was pretty unethical to let people sort of suffer and die because for of syphilis. Years. Yeah. Study. yeah. Yeah. A really okay. bad thing. So they're like, Hey, we should have an institutional review, review board to see if we're like Nazis. Yeah. So, so that the impetus is really good. Yeah. However, you know, as an anthropologist, I was like, wait, wait, I'm going to interview. I think that at that point I was studying, um, I wanted to interview Bollywood celebrities in India about fame culture in India. So I was like, you know, I had sort of the India gist in my, in my life and that, and IRB repeatedly told me that I could not interview celebrities who give interviews to the press all the time because I would be violating their privacy. And I was like, this is insanity uh, yeah. that that would happen as an, as an anthropologist who has to speak to people. Why can't I talk to people who are very well known? Like, mm -hmm. and, and so the, the problems with, in my mind with IRB is like, it, it can be good in certain circumstances, but can also be actually a research um it can actually hurt research. And you sort of have these supposed experts mm. expressing their opinions. And I think that ultimately it comes down oftentimes to liability. It mm. often comes down to like a university being like, well, will I get sued if this happens? Which is not really the, the spirit of what we want. We want, are we gonna get good data? Are we ethical people? Not, will we get punished if we do something wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, that could happen. It's not been my experience with IRBs, but yeah, totally. I mean, there's there's always kind of, there's always the concern about bad actors and and institutional, um, you know, problems for sure. Well, I you know I I uh, you know just to get off my IRB horse, you know, not everyone wants to talk about. It. Uh, you know, I just want to say this has been we we've been here for an hour, and I want to just say I really appreciate you um, you know taking the time to hang out with me, yeah. and uh, and this has been a really fascinating conversation. So anyone who's listening, um, where can they find more information? about you and what should they find out about you? Yeah, sure. No, um, I, you know, I've, I've got a website, jamiecarlinwatson.com where I talk about some of my, and it's mostly academic works, mostly scholarly books on expertise and moral expertise and articles like that. I have some, some pop culture stuff out there that uh, there's some links to it. Um, but yeah, I'd um, love to hear from folks if you're interested in expertise stuff. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity, Scott. I, uh, like I said, really appreciate your work. And uh, I look forward to um, talking with you more. Awesome. Well, thank you. And for everyone who's listening, uh, did you know that I have a Patreon? Go check it out. There's a link below because you didn't hear any ads in this if you're listening on Spotify. Uh, and, uh, and go check that out. Uh, from Pokey Bear LLC in Denver, Colorado, this was Scott Carney Investigates. Thanks a lot.